Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries, and you're listening to another episode of Theology Applied. In this episode, I was privileged to have as a special guest, Doreen Virtue. Uh, today's topic is something that she's been dealing with a lot on her channel and with her ministry, which is Reiki healing. And when I say dealing with a lot, what I mean is that she's been getting a lot of flack. Now, she's gotten a lot of encouragement as well, but she's gotten a lot of pushback. And ironically, a lot of it has come from those who profess to be followers of Christ. They say Reiki healing or energy healing is really nothing different than the biblical principle of laying on of hands. Well, both Doreen and I would beg to differ. Also, before we get started, if you would like to support Right Response Ministries, you can do so by giving a donation of any amount directly on our website, rightresponseministries.com. Again, that's rightresponseministries.com. Now, if you're not able to support our ministry financially, you can still be a great support to us by simply subscribing to our YouTube channel, click the bell so you'll be notified with all our new content, and especially by sharing our content with your friends and family and encouraging them to subscribe as well. The last thing that I want to say is this. If you are a Christian business owner or a conservative business owner who is okay with me being an unapologetic Christian and being on our show, um, we love Jesus. But we also love this nation. We love American values. We love conservative values because we believe that all those things ultimately stem from the Christian worldview, the teachings of Jesus. And so if you'd like to partner with us by being a sponsor with Right Response Ministries, we would love to get in touch with you. So feel free to reach out. You can email us at advertise at rightresponseministries.com. Advertise at rightresponseministries.com. Without further ado... Here's our show. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. All right, so welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. And as I've already mentioned, I'm privileged to be joined uh, now, I believe, for the third time by our special guest, Doreen Virtue. Doreen, would you just take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Pastor Joel. It's great to be back with you. Hi, everyone. Um, this is a topic that is is pretty intense. Um, whenever I post about this or do a video about it, I get a lot of pushback. Um, so I'm really glad to talk with you today because I was, before I was saved, I was a Reiki master and an energy really? healer. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I I have a background in Reiki. I received it. I gave it. And I've just, I want to sound the alarm, especially for professing Christians about the real truth background of Reiki and why Christians should have nothing to do with Reiki and energy healing in general. So real quick. So, so that's our topic. We're going to talk about Reiki energy healing, and we're going to be talking about the biblical principle of laying on of hands. And you said you've gotten pushback, and I can only imagine we've corresponded a little bit in preparation for this episode that the pushback, mm -hmm. some of it is coming, or maybe even a lot of it is coming from professing Christians who are saying, well, the Bible says laying on of hands, mm -hmm. we pray for the sick and we lay on our hands. That's What's right. the difference between that and Reiki? So my, my question is this, so, so what have you done recently in the, in the internet world that has so upset so many people. What, what do you think the, 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 if you could put your finger on it, what is the thing that people are taking the issue with the most? I, it's exactly what you and I talked about. And what I'm so excited you're going to talk about today is that people have been told lies, marketing lies 
um, that go back to the history of Reiki in the uh, in its beginning. So if I could just real get, quickly give a capsule history. Um, it was invented or discovered, depending on how you look at it, by a man in Japan in the 1930s named Asui, Mikeo Asui. And he was a student of world religion. And he got inspired for Reiki through a Buddhist manuscript that um, he, he, he says he has a revelation. He wrote a book about this. He said he had a revelation. And it involves these symbols that practitioners are attuned to. They're very bizarre symbols. Uh, maybe we can show some of them here on this video. Um, and, and so as a Reiki master, you go through a series of different classes to get attuned upward. And, um, and it's often very expensive to become a Reiki master. And, and so you want, you know, there, there's this kind of um, snobbery that you want to go to a teacher who comes from the Asui lineage, which was my teaching. Um, that's the originator. But what happened was that Asui taught 2000 students Reiki and Reiki is an energy that supposedly comes from the universe, which is of course a new age term. You, the new agers are all about universal energy and Reiki itself means spiritual universal energy. Uh, Reiki is spiritual energy. And so it comes through these symbols you've been attuned to and often through your hands, but you don't have to use your hands. People do different things to send Reiki energy. But I want to tell you, Pastor Joel, that it's it's palpable. I mean, there's something real going on. This is there's a lot of scientific studies that, you know, people say it's bogus, it's it's just a placebo. Um, and I I believe that. Um, but whenever I got or received Reiki before I was saved, I haven't been involved with it since, you could feel this pulsating effect, similar to kind of like a vibrating chair. I mean, it was real and I would have physical effects from it. So Reiki's real, but the question is, what's its source? So Asui taught 2000 students. One of his students went on to teach a, a Hawaiian woman, a Japanese American woman named um, Haya, I cannot pronounce her name, Hawaiio Takato. Okay. And so Takato was a Reiki master who went to, who took Reiki from Japan to the West. Um, very similar to how Yogananda brought yoga from India to California and the West. So Takata admittedly, she's passed on now. She admitted that she made up a story that Asui was a Christian theology professor at a Christian school and that he received Reiki inspiration from Jesus Christ and Jesus's healings. And she just completely fabricated this story. She said, admittedly, to make Reiki more appealing in the West. So she lied. And, and so later it was discovered that uh, Asui never said that. He said he obtained the knowledge of Reiki from the Buddhist religious book, Tantra. And Tantra is an energy, uh, very sexualized energy that's taught, um, that's in, popular in the New Age. Tantra of the lightning flash is where he got this. It had nothing to do with Christianity. I mean, he was a student of world religion, and one of the religions was Christianity. Um, but Reiki's not Christian. So anyone who's citing that, they're 
unfortunately, they've been deceived by this original marketing lie. Hmm. Wow. So some of the pushback that you're getting is from professing Christians saying, well, but there is a biblical principle for the laying on of hands. How, how have right. you responded to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've said that it has, one has nothing to do with the other. It's like trying to equate modern day psychics with biblical prophets. You know, they can right. seem similar, but they're nothing like each other. Mm. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's, let's go ahead and just take a moment and, and look at, I, as you were speaking, I was going ahead and marking my places in my Bibles, just so that we can look at a few passages. There are numerous texts throughout scripture that um, mention the laying on of hands. Um, and there are at least a few, at least three or four or even five purposes for laying on of hands in the scripture. And so I've selected, um, obviously not all the texts that reference the laying on of hands, but I've selected kind of a, a sampling, if you will, of some of these texts to show us some of the different biblical purposes for the laying on of hands, because it's not all related to healing, although that is one um, one of the purposes, we see Jesus praying for the sick and laying his hands on them. Um, but we certainly see that in the life of the disciples and the apostles. And we even have a command. Um, we are actually exhorted that, uh, is any among you sick? James chapter 5, then let him go to the elders of the church that they may pray for him, anointing, anointing him with oil uh, and laying hands on him and praying for him. The sick person will be made well. So here, here are just a few texts. Is that okay if I read some? Oh, please. This is what okay. we need for professing Christians to understand. Right. All right. So here we go. So this is Acts chapter 8, verse 17. It says, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Um, and so one of the purposes that we see for the laying on of hands, um, particularly in the New Testament, since Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, from that point on, uh, we see the laying on of hands by the apostles uh, in such a way that people are receiving the Holy Spirit. And we see, uh, I believe it was Simon the sorcerer who, when he discovers, when he witnesses the apostles laying on their hands and people receiving the Holy Spirit with certain signs, sign gifts that are uh, validating that they did in fact receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, this sorcerer, you know, he tries to bribe and buy um, not just the Holy Spirit, not just that he would receive the Holy Spirit, but the ability that the apostles seem to exclusively possess uh, to be able to lay his hands on people and for them to receive the Holy Spirit. So he goes to Peter and asks, you know, he offers him money and saying, can I too have this ability, you know, so that I can lay my hands on people and they would receive the Holy Spirit and power. And Peter immediately, you know, chastises him, you know, for thinking that he could buy this gift of the Holy Spirit with his money. And he said, you know, may your money perish with you also. And, um, and it seems as though, you know, I don't know if he repents, but he certainly, he certainly, um, changes his position and doesn't try to, to, you know, to buy that ability any longer. So that's one of the purposes is uh, laying on of hands. We see in the new Testament that people would receive the Holy spirit now real quick, just uh, so that, you know, I've, I've got some Pentecostals, you know, who listen to the show. Mm -hmm. And so I hate to burst the, the Pentecostal bubble. I love you guys. Um, you, those of you who are Orthodox and well under, you know, the, the banner of Christian Orthodox theology, um, I would still disagree with you on this point in terms of the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
um, being a subsequent experience to conversion, right? So there's conversion, then there's conversion 2.0. It's, it's similar to uh, Wesleyan theology, which I would also disagree with that. I'm, so I'm a Calvinist, I'm a cessationist, so I, I would disagree with uh, the Wesleyan uh, folk, you know, and I would also disagree with the Pentecostal folk. So Wesley had this idea of, um, of reaching a, you know, a state of perfection, this, um, this enlightenment, this, you know, that, that we could, you could basically come to a point where, where you're, you're, no longer sinning. And even Wesley and his theology would understand that, you know, well, there's still a sense in which we're sinning, but it's, you know, he would quote uh, the apostle Paul from Romans where he says, well, it's no longer I who sin, but sin living in me, you know? And so um, he would look at that. And I believe that's Romans seven, whereas I would look at Romans seven and say, this is Paul um, really um, Paul lamenting his, his, um, his state as a Christian, Paul in Romans seven, I, I personally take the viewpoint. I know that there's, you know, there are multiple views on this, but I, I take the approach that Romans seven is not Paul um, before conversion. It's a picture of Paul after conversion. That even after conversion, you know, that he's saying, "What a what a wretched man I am! Who will save me from this body of death?" And he he recounts the Christian struggle, ongoing struggle with sin. So anyway, so Wesleyan had this idea of Christian perfectionism. Um, Holiness, right? The holiness movement and that you could reach this certain echelon of sanctification to where you would no longer struggle with sin in the way that, um, in the way that you previously did. Well, Pentecostals kind of took this and, um, you know, 1906 would have been the big moment with the Azusa Street Revival and those kinds of things. And so um, they likened it to, well, the Holy Spirit coming upon someone with power. And they often would, you know, separate and say, well, there's the inward ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that all Christians have from the moment of conversion. The Spirit inside inside of us, you know, cries out, Abba, Father, you know, and, and affirms our salvation, um, that we are, in fact, adopted children of the Lord. But... Um, but there's a difference in the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian, being in the Christian versus the Spirit coming upon the Christian um, and anointing them, equipping them with power, signs and wonders. And the Pentecostal, the classic position is that the quintessential sign gift of the Holy Spirit is tongues. And so um, so you're already saved subsequent to that moment of conversion somewhere down the line. It could be a few months. It could be several years. But eventually um, you should be pursuing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you're pursuing it, it eventually will occur. And the the sign, um, the, the validation or evidence that you've received it is uh, the speaking in tongues. So all that back to the text that I just read from Acts chapter 8, verse 17. My point is to say um, this was a very unique dispensation within um, church history. Now, I use the term dispensation simply speaking of an error of time. I am personally not a dispensationalist. I would adhere to um, a Reformed Baptist 1689 covenantal theology. So, um, But even the covenant theologians can still use the term dispensation. Um, so this is a, a unique error of time. And what we basically have is there are many people who were converted um, through the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of Christ and his disciples, and even the preaching of John. John preached, um, he preached a, a ministry, a sermon, if you will, of, of the remission of sins, baptism, right? John's baptism, people coming down to the water and being baptized, and John saying that they're receiving forgiveness of sins. And John taught this not as a work, works righteousness, but John was, 
uh, the chief among the prophets other than Christ himself. You know, Jesus even said of all those born of women, John the Baptist is the greatest, and yet he'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. But in his earthly ministry, there is none that compares uh, to John the Baptist. He is the greatest of, of the prophets, and he's the kind of the final prophet underneath this old covenant that's ending, that's closing uh, with, with Christ establishing the new covenant. And so all that being said, John was preaching a gospel message. It wasn't a, a, a pharisaical message of works. It was a legitimate message. And John himself, when approached by Jesus as he's baptizing in the Jordan River, um, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So whatever gospel John was preaching, it, it wasn't a gospel that merely says baptism as a magical, mechanical you know, mechanism saves you, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world saves you, and baptism is a symbol of that, that the remission of sins. And so it was a it was a message of repentance. It was a message of also we can assume it's implicit that it was a message of faith, believing and trusting the Lamb of God, the Messiah who would come, and that we would be saved through faith in him, his substitutionary death. So my point is through John the Baptist preaching, as well as Jesus and the disciples, there were literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who were converted, but before the Spirit was poured out. Because the Spirit proceeds, we believe, within Christian orthodoxy, we're not Eastern Orthodox, and this is one of the differences, is as, as those who are Western Christian Orthodoxy in line with St. Augustine, who, who kind of drew the line on this, we believe that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father, not the Father only, but both the Father and the Son. And so um, the Spirit, even the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is a ministry that exudes um, the Spirit of the risen Christ. Well, the Spirit was not yet poured out because the Spirit proceeds from not only the Father, but also the Son, who is not yet glorified and ascended to the right hand of the Father to send the Spirit, but also the Son was not yet resurrected. Um, and so the, the, the Spirit, His chief ministry in the life of believers is to guide us into all truth, to remind us of what Jesus said, uh, to convict us of sin and judgment, and to exude to us the ministry of the risen Christ, who during the ministry of Jesus, his preaching, and John the Baptist, certainly, uh, well, Christ was not yet risen, and he certainly wasn't yet ascended to the right hand of the Father in order to send, to give um, the Holy Spirit. So what you have is a number of people being converted under the ministry of John the Baptist, as well as Jesus and his disciples, and yet the Spirit not yet poured out. My point is to say this, we don't live in that age today. We don't. So this idea that 2,000 years later that people are coming into Christ and conversion and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in the hearing of the gospel, Romans chapter 10, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And so for us to think that people are preaching the gospel faithfully, people are hearing the gospel, the Spirit is providing faith for them to believe the gospel, they're being converted, so they're truly born again, truly regenerate Christians, and yet they don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for this to be some kind of subsequent experience to happen at a later date um, is, is to completely misunderstand church history. The, the last thing I'll say on this real quick, I know it's a side point, but the last thing, it's important. The last thing I'll say is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, does not belong to our ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation, but rather what it belongs to is the history of salvation. And the difference between the history of salvation and the order of salvation is this. The order of salvation for the Calvinist uh, would be something like this. It begins with the foreknowledge of God. 
The foreknowledge of God is that before the foundations of the world were laid, it's his pre-love. And the foreknowledge of God is not that he, in eternity past, looked through the corridors of time, determining, you know, looking in his omniscience, seeing who would choose him. And then based off of that information, oh, because I know at a future date, this person will exist and they'll choose me. I, in eternity past, will choose them. Well, that would still be a conditional election. We believe in an unconditional election. So the foreknowledge of God is simply his pre-love, that it's an amazing thought to think that you and I are eternal in this sense, not, not divine. We are not divine, but we are eternal in this sense that there is never a time that we have not existed at least in the mind of God. Mm-hmm. And so as eternal is the essence of the triune God is himself, so is his will. The decree of God, the will of God belongs to the essence of God. And as old as the essence is, the ancient of days, without beginning, without start, there is never a time that God has not existed. And so too, there is never a time that his will has not existed. And because his will is eternal, his will includes his salvation of each individual person that he has foreknown. And so there was never a time that God has not known you and I, that he has not loved you and I. So in in the order of salvation, it begins with the foreknowledge of God. It's the election of God. There's the drawing of the Holy Spirit. There is conversion, regeneration uh, with faith and repentance of sin, a profession of faith. Then we have sanctification, right? We have perseverance. He who endures to the end will receive the crown of life. And then we have um, we have glorification, right? That we're given a new body to go and to be with Christ uh, forever on the last day. And so my point is I'm leaving some steps out, but I'm just giving a very basic reformed version, Calvinistic version of um, the order salutis, the order of salvation. The history of salvation is different. See, the history of salvation is God created the world. Uh, God sent um, prophets and his law into the world. Uh, types and shadows, the priestly sacrificial system in Israel, all these things pointing towards the Messiah. Um, then he sent the Messiah, the incarnation of Jesus, the earthly ministry of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. Um, and then we also have, of course, his glorious return that we are awaiting. And so my point is the order of salvation is the order, the process of how God saves an individual. It's the application of salvation to a specific sinner that God has chosen to save. That's the order of salvation. The order of salvation is salvation applied. The order in which salvation is applied in saving an individual. The history of salvation is the order in which salvation was accomplished, not applied, but accomplished by Christ himself. And so Pentecost, the outpouring of the spirit in Acts chapter two, what Pentecostals do is they place this into the order of salvation. People are converted And then the order is they receive the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the next step in the order of salvation being applied to individuals. No, Pentecost belongs to the history of salvation and what Christ has accomplished in history uh, for our redemption. So all that being said, one of the purposes of laying on of hands is the the, um, giving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was normative. In the early church, in the first century, especially those those first few years, right after Jesus's life, death, 
resurrection and ascension because you had a lot of people saved under the ministry of John the Baptist as well as Jesus and his disciples before the spirit was actually poured out. And so you have a little bit of catch up for lack of a better term, um, where the apostles are, are basically, they're going back, right? They're, they're going, they're, they're going back over the basis with all the people who came to true saving faith and are actually converted. Um, but, but they were converted before the spirit was poured out. And so now they're laying their hands and they're receiving the spirit. And in that dispensation, they are receiving the spirit with certain sign gifts. In most cases, such as tongues seems to be predominant or perhaps something else like prophecy. And again, I believe that that is unique to the first century church as well, because you don't have the closing of the canon. You don't have all the apostles epistles circulating around. Um, you, you're basically, you have the ministry of the spirit through the apostles and members of the Christian church um, in power, um, not just for the healing of the sick, not just for um, forgiving people, encouraging words of prophecies, but to validate that Christ did indeed raise from the dead and that this is his gospel. It's a validation of the message, which is the gospel. So all that being said, that's the first use, um, or at least I don't know if we, we should order it, but that's the first example that I'm providing in this episode of the laying on of hands. Doreen, do you have any, any response or thoughts about that before, that, before we move on? That's really um, edifying to see the distinction between the order of salvation and the history of the of of God's plan of redemption. So I Isn't that really helpful? That was Yeah, really that helpful. Was, that was a game that. changer for me, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and so I think I just want to focus on um that the laying on of hands biblically as mm. in in the context you're talking about is about the Holy Spirit where reiki energy is about a universal energy it has nothing to do with God, the the mm. third person of the Holy Trinity. So gotcha. it's so Reiki is is what we would call in the Old Testament strange fire, which mm-hmm. as That's we right. know it it was introduced into the the tabernacle and right. in, and resulted in the death instantly of Aaron's two sons because right. they didn't follow God's um, instructions. We're called right. in Ephesians five eleven to have nothing to do with darkness and to expose it. And so right. when we do this video, it's, it's exposing a counterfeit. I mean, just like in, in Exodus, the Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to mimic quite a few of God's miracles that were coming through Moses and Aaron. And, right. and Satan does counterfeit. We know this. And Reiki is a counterfeit to what you're talking about, the genuine Holy Spirit coming mm-hmm. through the biblical laying on of hands. And we've got to be so discerning and careful. That's good. That's really good. You're right. Satan, that's what he does. He counterfeits. He's not a creator. I think that, that's, that's one of the things that we have to remember. God alone is the creator who creates ex nihilo. Now, you could say that human beings made in his image are lowercase c creators. We don't create out of nothing. Um, but we do, we do take the resources that God has given us and we do create as it were in, in a sense of taking these resources that God has provided in the cosmos, in his creation and making wonderful things. And we do this in God's common grace and Christians do this um, in our ministry and our preaching of the gospel. And so there's that lowercase c creator, but Satan is not a creator really at all. All Satan really does is he, 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 he copies, but, but the thing that you pointed out that's so good Doreen is um, he never actually even copies um, 
he always, what he does is, is he copies, but he always tweaks and twists mm-hmm. and perverts. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always, it's, it's, um, as close to a copy as you could possibly get while being altered just enough to where it has poison yeah, to where yeah. it will harm. Right. Know? It's, it's Genesis three over and over again. This, this false right. promise, this carrot he dangles in front of people that you'll get something, some secret wisdom, some hidden knowledge and new agers are ripe for that temptation. I mean, right. when I was in the new age, I would fall for that. I had certificates from so many different types of energy healing, not just Reiki, right. but I studied pranic um, healing and, mm. and chakra healing and, um, polarity therapy and Qigong and, you know, I was just so hungry for learning what I thought was hidden wisdom, but there is no hidden wisdom. There is no secret. I mean, someone who's young watching this, I want to save them a lot of time and tell them that I was, I was saved at a new age at age 58 or 59. Um, And, and so I spent decades looking for some secret hidden wisdom including energy healing, and there is none. So save yourself time and money and go to the Bible. God's revealed everything. The scrolls are open in the Bible. That's right. Amen. Yeah, I I like what, you know, save yourself time and you threw in there, you know, and money. Yeah, Um, I I spent a ton on classes. (laughs) Right. Yeah, as soon as you said the certificates, I was thinking in my mind, I was like, how much did that cost? cost?" (laughs) I I bet they were pricey. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So here, so here's another verse. Um, this is Leviticus chapter four, verse fifteen, and this this one might surprise our listeners. Uh, this is another example of of the Bible's use of laying on of hands. It says, "And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord." So we always think of the laying on of hands in a positive light, but here's a negative example. Um, the uniqueness of this is the elders of the congregation, the congregation being Israel, um, so the, the people of God, they're, they're laying their hands on the head of a bull. And, and what's said here, what's being communicated is that they are, it's not just they're, they're laying their hands on the head of the bull, and then the verse goes on and says, and the bull is killed. But the, the bull is killed as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. So the significance of the laying on of hands before the bull is sacrificed is that the elders are representative of the congregation, the people of Israel corporately as a whole, and they are imputing the sin of the people to the bull. Now that word impute, you know, comes imputation. So it's, uh, you know, we believe as, as Orthodox Christians, the double imputation, uh, meaning that, you know, um, that Christ, when he hung on the cross, right? The, the scripture says, he who knew no sin became accursed. He became sin. Um, it, our sin was laid upon his shoulders, right? So substitutionary atonement that Christ, he didn't just die as an example of sacrificial love for your friends, right? Jesus did say greater love has not, no one, no one else than this, that a man would lie down, uh, lay down his life for his friends. So, so the cross is an example um, of love. But if it is merely an example of love, then we're all still dead in our sins and hell bound. Uh, so Christ did not merely show us sacrificial love for others in the cross. Um, it's not just an example. Christ died as a substitute. That means Christ actually died in our place. And, and so 
this idea of imputation, like even in the garden. So think about this. In the garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest, he's praying and he's beginning to sweat drops of blood. You know, And God even sends an angel to, to nourish him um, and to strengthen him. Um, and, it, and, and what we have really that's occurring is Jesus is already beginning to suffer under the wrath of God. He is not yet beginning to physically suffer with, you know, with the, the physical torture and pain of crucifixion. But what's happening is the sin of the world, of all those who, who God has elected unto salvation to put their hope and faith in Christ, their sin, all of their sin is being laid upon his shoulder. And he's already beginning to experience the displeasure and the wrath of God. And that's, he's praying, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, you know, but not my will, but yours be done, which does not mean, just for the record, that the will of God within the Trinity is divided. That's one more thing to say. I said it earlier in passing. I don't expect anyone to catch it, but I said the will of God belongs to the essence of God, not to the personhood of God, right? So we have one God and therefore one divine essence. We have a triune God and therefore three persons, but God does not have three wills, each belonging to each of the three persons. God has one will because the will of God belongs to the essence of God. Therefore, what I mean by that is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their will are always aligned. There is no break or schism in the will of God. Now, people will point to the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ says, if you know possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And people say, well, right there, the Son and the Father have a different will. Well, it's a little bit complicated, but what we see going on there is that the divine Son, the Son in his divine essence, does not have a different will than the Father. Um, but what's unique is, again, will doesn't belong to person. It belongs to essence. Um, or here's another word, nature. See, the Son possesses two natures. And therefore, the Son of God, unique among the other two persons of the Trinity, Father and Spirit, the Son does, in fact, possess two wills. He possesses the divine will, which is perfectly shared among all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he also has the human will. But the human will is not sinful. Christ is sinless. So even in his human will, Jesus, what he demonstrates for us in his humanity again and again and again is what perfect humanity actually looks like. What, what, what the human will would look like when perfectly submitted in righteousness to God. So still not the divine will because it's the human will. So it's separate from the divine will, but it's not in rebellion to the divine will saying, Hey, I'd love for this cup to pass, but at the end of the day, I'm in submission to you. So all that being said, Jesus is already beginning to experience um, the wrath of God because sin is being imputed to him, accredited to him. So that's another word for Im Im imputation, um, right? So we believe that the flip side of imputation is that for Christians, his righteousness is imputed to us, not by any works done unto the law so that no man may boast, but through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. So for those who have faith in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Or as Paul says in Galatians, speaking of Abraham, he believed God and it was accredited to him. So imputation, just think of like almost like a, a bank transaction. Like if I was to, you know, to go online and I don't know, Doreen, if you use Wells Fargo and I use Wells Far Fargo and I want to do an online, you know, bank transfer, I'm accrediting certain funds to your account, you know, or vice versa. That's what it is to, to impute. So the double imputation is the idea that our sin was imputed to Christ. So he who knew no sin became sin. 
And, and so he was a curse, literally a curse, not a cursed. He was that also a curse, but he became a curse himself hanging on the tree and God pouring out his white hot wrath upon his head because he became sin, right? In that moment, Jesus became the most vile, heinous, uh, wicked sinner to ever walk the earth because in that moment he bore all the sins of all God's people um, in every age. And so our sin was imputed to him and through faith, his righteousness is imputed to us, double imputation, his righteousness to us, our sin to him. And so all that being said in the Old Testament, we see, right, because the Old Testament shows us the gospel. It shows us types and shadows. Now we know this side of the cross within redemptive history, again, not the order of salvation, but the history of salvation. We as New Testament Christians, we, we know with much more clarity the gospel. But that's not because the gospel was not already at work in the world. The gospel, like the will of God, because the gospel is within the will of God, the gospel is as old as God himself. The gospel is the ancient gospel. Uh, it was always in the mind of God to redeem a people for himself by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so we see the gospel as early as the gospel, really, if, if we were to say it begins and it's really hard to speak of chronological order. It's really more of what we might call in philosophical terms, the order of logic, a logical order. Um, but the logical order of the gospel is this, that the gospel first began in the mind of God and the councils of eternity. We would call this in, in covenantal language, the covenant of redemption, the, 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 the covenant of redemption made between the father and the son by the Holy Spirit. So between father and son by the Holy Spirit to purchase a people for himself um, and, and to give them as a bride to the son for the son to give them back as a gift of glory and honor to the father. And so the covenant of redemption, that's where the gospel first has its roots. It's eternal. It's as, as eternal as God is. So is the gospel. Uh, we see it in human history first come into play in Genesis chapter three, uh, that as God is dealing out curses to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, um, in the middle of God handing out curses for sin. And it was just for God to do this. He wasn't being harsh or unfair, just for God to do this. He told them, if you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And so God is simply doing what he said would happen if they chose to disobey and Adam and Eve chose to rebel. And yet even in the midst of dispensing curses, our incredibly merciful God gives us the first glimpse of the gospel. He says, I shall put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent and the woman, and your offspring and hers, you shall strike his heel, but he shall crush your head. So Adam and Eve, they knew Jesus Christ as the serpent crusher. Abraham knew Jesus Christ as the seed, the promised seed through whom all the nations would be blessed, right? Skip further. David knew him as his son who eventually would sit on his throne and the increase of his government, there shall be no end, right? And, and then we further and further, this is progressive revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we now in the new Testament see with immense clarity, all that back to the point um, in the old Testament, the gospel existed, but it was alluded to with types and shadows. And one of those types and shadows is the whole priestly animal sacrificial system that we see in Israel with the tabernacle and then the temple. And one of the practices within this system is the practice of imputation, sin of the people being imputed into a substitute who would 
take the penalty for that sin. As Roman says, the wages of sin is death. And so an animal taking the penalty, the death, which is the wages for sin. Um, but first, in order for the animal to actually stand in representative of the people, uh, the animal, before it takes the penalty, it also has to take the sin. And so this, this act of imputation. And so one of the examples, ironically, within biblical language of the laying on of hands is not merely just to heal, but to impute a curse of sin that brings about death. Dorian, what, what do you think about that? Oh, man. <laughs> I, love, I love how you have the, um, the history of God's redemptive plan and, um, and the different covenants. And it was just beautifully put. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. All right, so I'll just do a couple more real quick. I know I'm I'm going long on on these, so I'll try to I'll try to go quicker. But all right, so here here's one. This is let's see, we've got First um, Timothy chapter five verse twenty two. Uh, it says, "Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure." Now, if we're not careful, that sounds like what we just talked about this imputation of sins. Like if I if I lay on hands to this person, they might have some kind of spiritually negative energy. They may ha- have some kind of um, demonic, you know, or sinful or evil kind of thing going on. If I touch them, if I lay hands on them, it, I, you know, it might be contagious. You know, I might, they might spread the, the spiritual virus and I, and I might contract it. Um, that's not the context of, of this particular passage. First Timothy chapter five, verse 22 is talking about the laying on of hands for, um, ordination. For, for appointing someone or installing someone into a position of spiritual authority for ministry. And so what, what Paul is ultimately saying to his son of the faith, Timothy, who's one of the purposes of Paul leaving him um, in, in, in the area where he, he is, is to set up elders, to appoint elders in these local churches. Paul did the same thing with Titus. And so Paul is basically warning Timothy, he says, as you look to appoint men to positions of spiritual authority, namely eldership in local churches, don't be hasty. Take your time. Make sure that they meet the qualifications. And so we see in this biblical text that another biblical purpose of laying on of hands is for the ordination or the installment, the elevation of people into positions of spiritual authority. So that would be another example. I mean, this is where in the new age, and I was very guilty of this myself, is you will hear kind of a rumor that that seems to justify a new age method that it's in the Bible, you know, that the Magi are astrologers, so therefore astrology is okay. And, and right. this is just a, a complete example of taking a verse, like you had said, um, about ordination out of context and say, see, the Bible says laying on of hands, therefore... And this is the slippery slope that the New Age has, you know, such a fallacy and heresy that if it says it in the Bible, it must be okay. No, right. the Bible is a newspaper, a history book of what not to do when we are unsaved, when we are, I mean, look at the book of Judges, right? In those days, people had no king and they did whatever they wanted. And, right. and that, that's what we have to look at, the context Mm-hmm. Amen. I completely agree. Um, so here's one more text, right? So Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, it says, For this reason, Paul writing to Timothy again in his second epistle, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame, to, to nourish, to, uh, to stir up, to be a good steward of the gift of God, 
which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us um, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So what Paul is doing here is basically, it seems as though between Paul's first letter to Timothy and now his second letter, Timothy has been at least tempted. If he hasn't acted on it, he's at least been tempted, or perhaps he communicated, you know, through letter to Paul that, that he's getting nervous. He's, he's up against some opposition, particularly in his preaching. That's what it seems like. If we follow through with the context, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Share this testimony. Preach Christ and him crucified and his gospel, uh, the remission of sins um, through faith alone and not by the works of the flesh and renounce um, those false teachers and those Judaizers and whoever else might be trying to pervert the gospel. And so what Paul is ultimately saying here is he's speaking about this gift, right? That, that Timothy has and people get real creative and get real excited about what that gift might be. Um, I am almost positive uh, that it was the gift of teaching which is one of the spiritual gifts listed in Paul's various lists of, of spiritual gifts, which we have a, a list in, well, two lists technically in First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. We have a list in Romans chapter 12. We have a list in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and so we, we have these, these gifts of spiritual, our list of spiritual gifts. Um, and I've already made my argument for cessationism. Just for the record, the cessationist does not believe that all the spiritual gifts have been done away with, but particularly the sign gifts that were, um, that were, primarily purposed to validate the message of the gospel, which has now been validated, um, but also to spread the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, like tongues being able to speak um, in these other tongues of men so that the gospel could go out to the Gentiles, which God, by his grace, has accomplished. There's still more work to be done, um, but the gift of tongues in the first century kind of kick-started this mission, the Great Commission, of going to every tribe and tongue and nation, discipling the nations um, and getting the gospel into um, each person's tongue. So all that being said, my point is, um, I believe that the particular gift here, it could have been a signed gift um, because this is still early on and we still see the signed gifts at work in some sense. But here's the, here's the ironic thing. We actually see the signed gifts starting to, to fade away. Mm -hmm. This is Paul's second letter to Timothy. Um, in his first letter to Timothy, um, and I know my continuationist brothers and sisters will not appreciate what I'm saying right now. So just, you, you can do earmuffs, you know, and then come back into the conversation yeah. later, you know, but, but this is what I believe. And I believe that it is biblical and, and I hope that you would hear me out and feel free to give me some pushback and I'll try to respond to some of the comments. But my, my point is this, Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and not only water. So Timothy has some kind of stomach ailment. And Paul prescribes wine. Now, now keep in mind, this is the same Apostle Paul who, who people were taking articles of his clothing, his handkerchiefs, just any kind of cloth that had touched his body. And these aren't prayer cloths, right? This isn't your Joyce Meyer, you know, she's uh, prayed and anointed these cloths with oil or perfume and prayed over them and then is, oh, will God. mail them for, you know, $150. This, no, this isn't like Paul praying over cloths mm -hmm. and then people taking them. This is literally like Paul's just doing his ministry. He's not thinking about the cloth at all. It's just a shirt that he was wearing that, that somehow somebody got a hold of it and, and it's being cut up into pieces. And here's the crazy thing. Right. Because you think, oh, that's just crazy superstition. 
Um, no, what the Bible says is that it may have been superstitious, but but Paul as an apostle of Christ was so anointed by God that, that these claws, cloths from Paul that he did not pray over, that he did not anoint, but just randomly were falling into the hands of people were actually making sick people well. My point is this. Instead of writing to Timothy, right? Because somebody had to deliver this letter, physically deliver the letter from Paul to Timothy. So instead of saying, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, why don't you just wrap that letter with one of your claws and let Timothy touch it, right? Then he could just be all better. Why, why doesn't Paul do this? Because Paul's letters to Timothy are towards the end of his lifetime, towards the end of his ministry. And I believe we're already beginning to see some of these sign gifts fall away. Now, for the record, I still believe that the gift of healing exists. Well, this is what I should say. I still believe that God heals. That's how I should say it. I should be careful in my language. I believe that God physically heals people in miraculous ways today. He certainly heals people through his providence Every time somebody is recovered from any ailment, it is because God is doing it. God's sovereign over all things. So, so God gets glory for every healing, even if we are healed naturally. Who, who created those antibodies and all the, you know, and, and God's common grace? Who, who gave us, you know, certain medicines and all these things? But, but I believe that God even miraculously heals people today. Um, however, however, um, the gift of healing or, or what we should say healers, an, a, a specific individual who seems to have a specific anointing to heal on a regular basis and not just prayers of petition, God, would you please heal this person, but declaration statements in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That I don't believe exists anymore. Yeah. So I believe that we still have healings and that the church, like, like James chapter five, especially elders of the church. I, I just got done doing that this week. Um, a, a family in our church had, had one of their children have to go to the emergency room with an asthma attack. Um, I immediately, um, contacted the family, asked if I could go. I went to the emergency room and, um, and, and I walked in there and I wore my mask uh, just long enough to get into the room and then I took it off and, uh, and I prayed for this child that God would open his lungs and miraculously heal him. And by God's grace, I just got confirmation today that, uh, that the child is recovering remarkably and gets to go home. And so praise, praise God, praise the Lord. But, but Joel Webb is not a healer and Joel Webb doesn't have the gift of healing. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't declare anything. I petitioned and asked the Lord to heal. And sometimes he does. And sometimes he doesn't. Now, my, my point is to say with all of this, um, I believe that you see these kind of sign gifts starting to fade away. So in second Timothy that, you know, cause this is second Timothy, the text that I read second Timothy chapters uh, one verse six, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame, right? So he's saying increase the gift. Well, Paul in first Timothy says, drink wine for your stomach ailment and neglects to send him a prayer cloth. And I think there's a reason to that. And I know, you know, the charismatic things that you're reading way too into the text. Um, well, I wish you would read more into some other texts, you know, but anyways, my point is, you know, I think the sign gifts are already starting to fade off in first Timothy. This is now second Timothy. So it's even later. So I think that these sign gifts are already, you know, fading away even more because the message has been established. Churches have been planted. The gospel has been validated. The message is, is, is here to stay. Now that being said, um, if that's the case, if I'm right about that, even if I'm wrong about it, it doesn't really matter for this purpose, but if I'm right about that and the gifts are starting to fade away, the idea of, of Paul writing to Timothy in regards to a sign gift and saying, fan it into flame, 
make it even stronger. If the sign gifts are fading and Paul's saying, let's, let's take this up a notch, that doesn't seem to make sense. So I think the particular gift that Paul is referencing is the gift of teaching, which is a gift of the spirit. It is a spiritual gift that is still alive and well today. Cessationists don't believe all gifts have ceased. Um, I'm using the gift of teaching right now. So all that being said, I think Paul is saying fan this into flame. Now here's the question. Um, Romans, there's also a text in Romans that says, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. So there is a debate. Is one of the purposes of laying on of hands, because that's what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 1, 6. He says, this reason, uh, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Is there a biblical principle from the apostles specifically of laying on of hands to impart a spiritual gift? Um, I personally would side with with various reform scholars that there's not. Um, that Paul, um, even when he speaks to the Romans, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. I think he's referring to doctrine. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think Paul's saying, I have this, this ability to lay my hands on you and impart one spiritual gift that I possess to you. Um, no, or it, to be it, a... Con- go ahead, go ahead. It doesn't say that. We can't speculate. If it doesn't right. say it in the Bible, then it's not God's word. Right. And that's yeah. and, and one of the reasons I would disagree with that is because Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit yep. is the one who sovereignly gives gifts to those he appoints. And yeah. so the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Now, for you to say, well, God also heals, but he heals through men laying on their hands and praying. Okay, I, I, I see what you did there. I understand that. Um, so why can't a person be a conduit of the Holy Spirit laying on of hands and imparting a gift? Well, again, I don't think we have enough biblical evidence for that. We only have a couple places, instances of the impartation of a spiritual gift. And I think we can easily read that as the gift is, I'm going to be there and I'm going to minister among you. I'm going to preach. Among, I'm going to impart doctrine that will strengthen your faith. So right. all the way back here, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, I think what Paul's saying is he's saying, fan into flame this gift. I believe it's the gift of teaching or the gift of preaching. Um, and he says, and it's a gift that you received through the laying on of hands, the laying on of, on of hands. And it's a gift that, that you need to grow in because God hasn't made you afraid. That was, really makes me think it's, it's preaching um, and teaching uh, that, that Timothy is, is tempted to shrink back or shrinking back in a bold proclamation of the gospel because of some opposition he's experiencing. And Paul's saying, no, you need to be bolder now than ever and fan that, that, that gift of teaching uh, into flame, and it's a gift that you received through the laying on of my hands. Well, I think that that actually is a reference right back to what we saw in First Timothy chapter five, when he says, "Don't lay hands on quickly," meaning the laying on of hands in such a way that it symbolically um, is appointing someone to ministry. So, I think Paul, what he's actually saying is, he's saying, "You didn't receive the gift of preaching through me, an impartation of that spiritual gift through me." I think what Paul's saying is he's reminding Timothy of Timothy's own ordination, that Paul was there ordaining Timothy with likely um, a congregation gathered around and perhaps some other elders. Maybe they laid on hands uh, of Timothy along with Paul. And he's saying, we laid hands on you and appointed you to the ministry, to the ministry of preaching the gospel, a workman 
you know, rightly dividing the word of truth with nothing to be ashamed of. So don't you dare shrink back now. You were ordained publicly and I was there at your ordination, the one who is instituting you into the office of an elder to preach the gospel with boldness. Don't you dare shrink back now, but fan that gift into flame. So I think Paul, what he's referencing is um, the laying on of hands once again for the appointment of spiritual authority, namely eldership. And in that appointment, I don't think Paul's saying you received then in, in, in the moment moment of your ordination ceremony, that's when you receive the gift of, of preaching, because that's inconsistent with what Paul says to Timothy. What, what does he say? Um, don't lay on hands quickly. First, make sure they're qualified. And one of the qualifications is able to teach. So I think what Paul's saying is, I laid on hands and ordained you in ministry, and I ordained you in ministry because you met the elder qualifications. And one of them is that you were a heck of a preacher. You're a preacher, Timothy. And I wouldn't have laid my hands on you to ordain you in ministry if you weren't a preacher. And don't you stop preaching. So all that being said, some would say another purpose of laying on hands is the impartation of spiritual gifts, which I believe doesn't actually exist as a biblical category at all. Uh, Agreed. (laughs) And I mean, this is the kind of pushback I've been getting from people when I warn them about Reiki. And, you know, we look at the history of the man who invented it, Usui, and he was a Shugendo practitioner, which is Mm. Japanese shamanism. And they're involved with divination, mediumship, I mean, just a whole host of sins. And then they have this energy healing in the middle of that. And the most offensive pushback I got, and it was probably from three or four people, Pastor Joel, is that, that that Jesus was conducting Reiki sessions when he healed people. And wow. I mean, I, how, how I, do they, they, how do they defend just, that? They just say that. They say, well, Jesus was a, like a Reiki master. And I want to cry uh, when I hear that. It just breaks my heart that people would think that, believe that, and say it. Yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. It's All right, totally let me, let me ridiculous. Give, let me give just one more example. Uh, so this is Mark chapter 10, verse 16. Mark chapter 10, verse 16. It says this. Um, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. All right. So if you're familiar with this passage, if I were to back up, you'll definitely will ring a bell starting at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus saw it. He was in. Uh, dignant, indignant, and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Then it goes to verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So this is Jesus, not just the apostles or a prophet or a priest in the Old Testament. This is Christ himself laying his hands on children And in this context, it's not specifically sick children that Jesus is laying his hands on them to be healed, but rather it is children uh, that the parents are bringing them to Jesus in order to receive a blessing. And so Jesus is blessing the children. And so that's why often um, in more traditional churches, um, many Reformed churches, uh, some Lutheran churches, Reformed Baptist, Reformed Presbyterian, uh, perhaps even Anglican churches, and even in Catholic churches, which I would obviously disagree with, um, but it is a common practice. I do this in my church, so I give a benediction. 
At the end of each service, we, we conclude our service by singing the doxology corporately, but then I finally, uh, right after the doxology, I, I say a, a pronounce a benediction, a blessing to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. And as I do that, I raise my hands up and outward. Now, traditionally, what that comes from is, is that the minister would actually usually do that for each individual person as they were leaving the worship service. He would actually hold out his hands and touch them and bless them. And so um, over the centuries, it became you know extending, reaching out, the minister, the vicar, reaching out his hands and, and giving a blessing to the people. And so, um, but that being said, I would be perfectly comfortable now, I'm, it doesn't mean that the minister is Jesus, but what it does mean is that, see, there was a time in our culture where people used to have a high view of the church. So part of the reason people are offended by it now is because we have such a low view of the church, yeah. uh, which is why we were perfectly content to close all of our church doors for <laughs> months and months and months over the last couple of years. But when people had a high view of the church, one of the things that they recognized is that the minister, um, that he was that he was representative, not that he is Christ, that would be blasphemy, but that on the Lord's day, when the saints gathered together, the minister appointed by that church ordained um, that as he rightly preached the word of God and rightly administered the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's supper, that he was representative of Christ, that the people, when we gather to church, we are gathering to, to receive a word from Christ. And so the minister would bless the people as Christ would bless the people as representative. It wasn't a statement of arrogance or pride or anything like that. And so um, all that being said, very few churches, at least Protestant churches, sadly, still practice this. But I, I believe it's a biblical practice and a good practice. And it certainly follows the pattern of church history that the minister of God, because on the Lord's day when the church gathers together, he is representing Christ. He follows Christ's example who would lay his hands on his people and um, and extend to them a blessing. And so all that being said, that's another purpose of the laying on of hands that we see Jesus model. And you might even see your pastor, your minister model yeah. um, on the Lord's day is to extend a blessing. Go ahead. That's so interesting because, you know, we're Reformed Baptist and my husband was always wondering why our pastor would raise his hand at the end of the service, when he said the benediction, reading scripture. Right. That's what so, it's from. So it's from yep. the history. Oh, he'll love hearing yep. that. Yep. R.C. Sproul's got a great teaching. I can't remember the name of it. So, and, you know, and find, finding a specific teaching is like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Here. I mean, R.C. Sproul just so many teachings. So prolific. You know, but, yeah. uh, well, you know, it's not like finding a needle in a haystack because Ligonier actually has a pretty good search engine. So anyways, I highly recommend Ligonier and R.C. Sproul is one of my favorites. And he, I, I think I, I first learned that from him and then I read up on it a little uh -huh. bit more. But R.C. Sproul, I remember he has a teaching where I think it's on Renewing Your Mind, the podcast yep. that he has. I, I he listen to it every day. The minister of God extending his hands and blessing um, the people of God. So Anyways, okay. I got to give R.C. Sproul credit for that. So that's so what we've seen now is that, all right, so I've gone through, I, I did this on purpose. I wanted to show there's multiple, multiple different reasons for the laying on, the practice of the laying on of hands throughout scripture. And, and notice uh, we haven't even uh, gotten to healing yet. Yeah. And, my, and my reason for doing that is to say um, to truncate all of the biblical testimony to you know, laying on of hands and and it and it making sick people better. Okay, there is a precedence for that in Scripture, um, but there's also laying on of hands uh, to impute sin. 
uh, to curse. There's laying on hands to give a blessing to those who are physically healthy, uh, like children. Um, there is the laying on of hands for the appointment of ministry to set someone apart for the work of the gospel. Um, I don't have time to look at other texts, but there's another text where the laying on of hands, um, the Bible uses that exact phrase, the laying on of hands, and it means to beat someone up, <laughs> to physically wow. assault them, you know? And so there's the laying on of hands that like, like, I hope they don't lay hands on me. And, you know, we always make a joke about that, but they're actually, that joke actually comes from an actual verse in the Bible that talks about laying on of hands, um, that, that the person was assaulted, that they were physically beat up. So there's a the laying on of hands that imputes sin, that, that curses someone spiritually. There's a the laying on of hands that that actually harms and beats someone up physically. There's a laying on hands that blesses someone spiritually. There's a laying on hands that appoints someone um, in an ordination ceremony for a position of of uh, spiritual authority and, and uh, public ministry. There's a laying on of hands in all these different ways. Um, and so to pretend as though the laying on of hands always in biblical terms um, is a reference to physical healing is um, was to just not read the Bible. It's right. to cherry pick. Yeah, so. and I mean, and it's definitely not Reiki, which was discovered in 1930. So, I mean, the Bible <laughs> is thousands of years old. I mean, one of the things I just want to say as we're closing is that people get hooked and addicted to the New Age because it seems to work. Again, that the Satan's counterfeiting. And Justin Peters, who, as you know, was he was born with cerebral palsy, and he spent right. a lot of years going to faith healers trying to get healed, and none of it worked. And he ended up doing his dissertation or his, his thesis um, at Southern Baptist Seminary on how faith healers are bogus, you know, <laughs> you know mm -hmm. right. Benny Hinn and, and all these different ones that he went to. And right. he told me something that I just, it, it just so makes sense. Because I asked him, I said, how come some people seem to be healed through going to a shaman or a Reiki master or a Christian science practitioner, which are clearly apostate heretics? And he said that it's nuanced, that demons sometimes inflict injury or disease on people and then lead them to the false practitioner. And then they they relieve that person of the oppression and, and, it, mm. and it looks like a healing, but then that person attributes their healing to the false practitioner and they get hooked into that system. And that makes wow. so much sense. Cause you know, I was raised it Christian does. science and we saw healings constantly in my family, myself at church, we'd have the testimony meetings every Wednesday and people were healed of everything from broken bones to cancer. And I grew up with that. So I thought Mary Baker Eddy had discovered the truth. And I know people feel the same way about Reiki and energy healing, but it's counterfeit. Just because something right. seems to work does not mean it's from God. That was what I had to get through my head when I was saved. It, it, it yep. seems to work, but look at where it's pointing you. Is it pointing you to Jesus? Is it pointing you to scripture? If it is, you know, it's like John said in, in 1 John 4, we have to test the spirit. If it's, right. If it's Reiki, it's pointing you to New Age circles. It's pointing you to seances and mediumship and divination and, and yoga and things that are not scriptural. We have to be so careful. Amen. You're absolutely right. So let, let's go ahead and end now by me. Just, I just want to ask you a couple questions. So one of the questions that I have is, in the practice of Reiki healing, um, is there a petition? Meaning, does the, the, the Reiki master, as they're laying on their hands, do they speak out loud? And, w and when they speak out loud, 
um, do they do they speak to Jesus? Do they speak to God? And and is in their speaking is there a declaration of healing or is there a humble request, a petition? Do they ask? Are they laying on hands and asking God to heal? Uh, that's one of my questions. Yeah. Um, in traditional Reiki, you're a conduit. You're a mediator of the universal energy through these symbols you've been attuned to. Now, you're going to hear from professing Christians who say that they're blending the two, that they're, mm-hmm. they're channeling universal energy while talking to Jesus. But I can tell them that that's not the real Jesus. The, the real Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the commandments right. go back to the moral law to love God with all of our heart. And, and that doesn't mean love in the sense of inclusiveness and everything goes and just leave me alone while I sin in peace. That's love, meaning trusting God, obeying God. And in looking at the Ten Commandments, we should have no other gods before him and no idols. And Reiki is idolatry. And that's the crux, mm. crux of New Age heresy is, is it's having a, another god. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So that the reason why I asked that question is because it goes back to kind of, you know, what I was trying to say earlier about sign gifts and these kind of things. And so I know that, you know, for, you know, at least a portion of your audience and mine that, you know, I'm going to lose people here, but I'm still going to do my best. And, and I'm just humbly asking that, you know, that our audience who disagrees with me over the sign gifts of the, the Holy Spirit, whether they've ceased or continued, if you would just, well, if you just have enough humility to consider it. And, and I promise you, if you're like, well, it's a two-way street, why don't you have enough humility to consider it? Well, um, I have, and I still do. Um, I am a cessationist. I am convinced of that position, and yet I have a few close friends who are continuationists. One of them I just spoke to for an hour on the phone yesterday um, who I allowed to, to sit there and make arguments for continuationism, and we have this kind of conversation once every few months, and I hear his arguments out, and some of them are decent arguments. I ultimately disagree with them. I have my position, um, but I'm, I'm not a closed book. I want to believe the scripture, period, wherever it leads. I'm not afraid of, of ending up in this position or that position. What I'm afraid of is not obeying the Bible. That's my greatest fear. I want to follow the Bible wherever it leads. I believe that the Bible leads to cessationism. I really do, and that's why I'm here. Um, but all that being said, I hope that you would have that same kind of humility and hear me out. If, if the sign gifts were passing away, then we have prophecy, we have tongues, we have interpretation of tongues, those being some of the chief ones. There are still gifts that continue to this day in this church age of teaching and gifts of helps and administrations and encouragement and these kinds of things. Um, and I do believe that healing has continued, but a gift of healing or a healer, I don't believe has continued. And I believe that we find that James chapter five, I think would be an example. And all the examples I've already, you know, not that I gave a ton of examples, but I did give a lot of exegesis of the first Timothy and second Timothy, drink a little wine and those kinds of things. And so with all that, bearing all that in mind, I believe that healing today is primarily a, a corporate, it's, a, it's always been a sovereign work of God. Um, but as it pertains to man or any conduit, uh, which I, even that word makes me a little uneasy, but to use that word, um, I believe that the conduit, if anything, is it's a corporate conduit, meaning um, that I think God does miraculously heal today in response to the prayers of the church. 
It is not uh, bring them to the individual healer as they have their healing crusade. You know, the Catherine Coleman or the Benny Hinn or the whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, no, take them to the elders of the church. And it's not because the elders of the church, right? It's the same thing I said earlier about why the minister raises his hand and pronounces the blessing and the benediction to the people. Why? Because he's the man of God. He's the anointed. No, no, it's nothing inherent to the minister, not his righteousness, not his holiness and not his supernatural power. It's because he's representing Christ. And I think when we take, when we take the sick to the elders of the church, um, they, it's not just that they represent Christ, but they also stand in as representative of the body. So they represent Christ in one sense, who is the head, but they're also in that moment standing in representative of the body of Christ, the church, the congregation. Um, and, and so when we pray for the sick today, number one, it's not declarations. It's not rise up in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. It's not. We see that modeled by the apostles. There's only a very small, we know in the New Testament that there were many people in the church beyond the apostles who had signed gifts, that had the ability to prophesy, like Philip had four daughters who prophesied, right? You got to do something with that, you know? And so there, there certainly are biblical texts for that. Um, but we don't have biblical texts, even in the first century, that talks about a whole, you know, dozens and dozens of Christians outside of the apostles healing the sick with declarations. Um, I think we're meant to assume that that was unique. Um, And so what we have instead is petitions. So number one, you don't just have somebody rubbing their shoulder and, and moving energy through them. You don't have that. You always have words. You always have words. And this is why you have words. Um, You have words so that the people will turn and give God the glory that they'll turn, that they'll hear the word. How will they believe unless they hear, right? So it's not just what they see in, in a miraculous healing, but it's what they hear, right? It's just like um, Peter and John is that, you know, they're going to the gate called beautiful. And there's a man there who's lame since birth and, 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 you know, silver and gold have we none, uh, but what we do have, right? And they declare as apostles in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And, and all of a sudden the people are looking to them, you know, as, as though they were some kind of deity and they say, Hey, hey, men, you know, men of Israel don't look to us like this as though in our own power, we made this man, but, but simply Jesus who you crucify. And so they turn and, and, and even in their declaration, they say, they, they don't say rise up and walk. No, they say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So, so my point is in healing today, I don't believe we have healers today and I don't believe that we make declarations of healing and gifts of healing, but I do think we still have a God who heals. I think he primarily heals through the corporate prayers of his church elders um, representing uh, both Christ and the church and through humble petitions, requesting the Lord, asking him for healing, knowing that he may heal, he may not. And, and in this always it's with words. It's never this, this silent, you know, rubbing of the shoulder or something. It's always with words and the words should be humble. They should be a request and they should always be saturated, um, with, with the name of Jesus. This is about Jesus. I'm calling out to Jesus. I'm asking Jesus. You alone are the one who has the power to heal. And so that would be my question is what Reiki healer, right? So even those who are saying, oh yeah, well, Reiki is Christian. Reiki is uh, the power of Jesus. Jesus was the first Reiki healer, blah, 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 all the stuff that you've shared, Doreen. My question is, okay, then go find a Reiki healer. 
Go find a Reiki healer who heals with a team, right? Like a team of elders, multiple Christians in a church praying. Who, so number one, he's not a one-man show. He's got a team and he's representing others and he's using words the entire time. He's calling out to Jesus. It's not a declaration of pride pretending to be an apostle, uh, but rather it's a humble petition of request. And he also leaves room for the sovereignty of God, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God can deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, you know, and saying, and, and here's the last one, and he doesn't take your money. So okay. that, that, like, there you go. There you go. Let's let's talk about money real quick because yeah. people people in the New Age are always accusing me of becoming a Christian for money, and it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't I don't take any donations. I don't have a Patreon account where people can donate to me. Um, I you know I'm basically broke. My husband had to go get a new job. I work part time at a job, and you know so the people who give the pushback about this are the people making money off of Reiki and energy healing and teaching. And it's threatening to them that we're saying this because we are threatening their industry. And it, it, it just reminds me so much of Acts 19 where the silversmiths got so angry with Paul, they wanted to kill him because people stopped buying their goddess statues, their Artemis statues, because Paul was saying the gospel that Jesus is the one true God you know, that we don't need these goddesses. In fact, it's blasphemy. It's um, it's polytheism, and the you know the so he was he was hunted. And also Acts sixteen, where Paul cast the the python demon spirit out of the young girl who was possessed and was a psychic. Her her um, managers made a lot of money off of her psychic readings, so they got very angry with Paul. And so people get angry with us saying this because it threatens their livelihood. But what I want to say to, to those who have a new age livelihood, trust in God's provision, repent. Um, that's what I had to do is just repent. My livelihood was in the new age. I was, I was really concerned. What am I going to do? I have all these employees. I've got my family, this ranch I have to, to deal with. I gave it all to God. I just repented and said, your will, not my will. And God's provided not riches but needs and that's what he right. promises for those who sincerely believe amen that is that's so good that's a great note to end on all right well doreen let, let us know um our listeners how can they follow you how can they be praying for you because you're right i <laughs> you're, you're not in it if you were in it for the money you would have stayed right where you were and oh, so yeah. um so I, I want our listeners to be able to support you, to pray for you. How, how can they follow you, keep up with you, and, and you. Um, be a blessing to you? Oh, thanks. Well, don't follow me. Follow Jesus. Um, but, but you can see my posts. Instagram is the easiest one. That's where I'm most active. You can send me a message there. Um, I'm the only one that read and replies to messages, and wow. I, I'm kind of busy, so it takes me a while sometimes. I do my best to keep an eye out for those who are newly coming out of the new age so I can support you. And, um, and if you're nice, if you write me a nice letter, even if you disagree with me, I will read and respond. But if you write me a mean letter, I can't take it, so I don't right. respond to mean letters. Right. And yeah. um, how you can pray for me. My family is still new age and it breaks my heart every single minute of every day that um, they shun me. They won't talk to me. They think that I'm, um, you know, not loving because I'm calling out the new age. So if you could just pray for my my family's salvation, pray Christian prayers. I don't want any Reiki for my family. Um, <laughs> just please, please pray biblically for my family to 
um, to come to know Jesus, the real Jesus, and to repent and be saved. Amen. Great. All right, Doreen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Pastor Joel. It's always an honor to be with you. God bless you and your ministry. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com slash offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com slash offer. And thank you for your generous support.